Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Bill Brewster, who acts as the portfolio manager for his family. He is also a CFA, though he doesn't talk about that much. He can be found co-hosting the Value After Hours podcast with Tobias Carlisle and Jake Taylor. I listen to a lot of podcasts, almost all of them investing related, and I speak the truth. Value After Hours is one of my favorites. If you listen to just one investing podcast, make it seven investing. But if you listen to more than one, Value After Hours definitely belongs on your playlist. He is one of the most entertaining and provocative followers on Fintwit, where he can be found at Bill Brewster SCG, and he blogs when it strikes his fancy at solomarcapital.group. Bill, welcome to the show. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you for giving us the uh, recommendation as the, the second in line. I appreciate <laughs> that. I was wondering where you were going to go with the intro, and I like how you, how you did that. All right. Uh, Bill, why don't you just start off by uh, telling us how you first got into investing and, and what led to your current position and what you do? Uh, I, I sort of found investing, um, in a very similar way to a lot of people. Um, my grandma's friend had sent me a couple Bogle books and in between he slid in the intelligent investor by Ben Graham. And I don't know if that was some sort of sick joke or whatever, but, uh, you know, the, I, th- I think the point he was trying to drive home to me was not the one that I took from the whole lesson. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I sort of, uh, ended up as a, uh, you know, as an active person. What, how old were you when that, when all that was going down? Oh, uh, that was, uh, that was sometime around law school. So I would say that, um, I don't know, maybe 23, 24. So your family, uh, you, you thought you were going to be a lawyer and like, uh, they sent you some boglehead books and you turned out to be an active investor. <laughs> I guess I, I think it was closer to, I was pretty lost in my early twenties and, uh, I didn't know where I was going with certain things. I had, I had actually tried to be a small business owner for a little bit. And, um, it was pretty obvious that I was going to be able to make like just a little bit of money with all that stress, uh, as opposed to, you know, it would have been a lot to turn it around. It was a franchise and the, the franchise structure, you're paying a lot of money off the top and it just didn't make sense to continue to invest the time, uh, or money in the business. So as I was winding that down, um, I sort of revisited what he had sent. And then, you know, I, I thought a little bit differently after going through that, that process. Um, so that was, that's more or less what it is. Uh, and then I was at a bank, I was at bank of Montreal for, well, BMO Harris, uh, for five years and I underwrote commercial credit. Um, and then just the way that my personal situation is, I, I ended up talking to my wife, um, after I got my CFA, designation. And I said, uh, you know, it, it's sort of the, the way that my family is structured. Uh, if I got control of a fair amount of money and didn't know what I was doing, and then I sold at a bottom like March, right? If it, let's say I didn't understand what I own and what I was actually doing and I capitulated in March, that would have cost me much more than whatever I could have made at the bank. And I said at the time, like, I got to be able to know the strategy that I'm running and believe in it enough to stick with it through the hard times. And I think that's going to have a lot more to do with sort of our family's ultimate outcome than, you know, whether or not I'm decent at underwriting loans. And she sort of said, well, you know, why don't you try to go do it? 
and here I am. I don't, uh, I, I just, you know, run my own capital. Nothing I say here is, uh, investment advice, seek your own, you know, do your own due diligence, seek your own advisor, all those disclosures. Um, but that's sort of where I'm at. I'm considering maybe opening an advisory service, you know, in a little while, but for now I, I don't have much upside to doing it. And I, I tend to, uh, get a lot of down or, or I've derived a ton of benefit from Fintwit and, one of the things I associate with that is I don't have an advisory and I have the freedom to just be completely free. Uh, and I know a lot of people deal with, you know, compliance and all that stuff. And I, I'm not sure. I think I might be giving up a little bit too much to actually start a business, which is sort of an odd thing to say. Sure. Sure. No, I, I get that. Let me uh, pick at something a little, you just said, like uh, you, you said, like you wanted to have enough conviction to like hold through the downtimes uh, like how, like no matter what kind of investor you are, how, how important is, is just nailing that part of it? Like knowing when your style might be taking a, a hit, but you got to hold through it as opposed to like, uh, like how important is that compared to just like, I guess your investing style, like value versus growth or, or whatever, like, uh, like that temperament to know, like, I actually, I understand why it's down and I believe like this won't be a sustained, uh, downturn and to be able to hold through that or even add as it goes down. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's everything, right? I mean, that's, if you look at any study of like even the great mutual funds, right? The average investor in the fund rarely gets the returns of the fund. So, you know, my personal opinion is, uh, sorry if that's a, is there a beeping in the background? Uh, we're good. Let, we're good. Uh, okay. Um, I was getting pinged on a message here. I'll shut it down. Um, anyway, yeah, I just think that if you don't know the strategy that you're running and you're listening to other people for, you know, a buy recommendation or something and, and you don't, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just personalize everything rather than saying you and like, I yeah, don't sure. do the work. Right. I mean, I learned from watching guys that I thought were really awesome and I'd have, I'd have their 13 F open and I'd follow them into a position and then the position would go against me a little bit. And I have no idea if I'm wrong at that point, right? Like I'm waiting for their next 13 F wondering, Oh my goodness, have they sold, have they changed their mind? And as I've done this, you know, I guess, I guess it's going on five years now. Um, you know, it, it, there's so many different incentives when you're looking at somebody's 13 F people have, are thinking different things for different reasons. Like you, you've got to be able, in my opinion, to own what you own because you own it. Right. And not because somebody else does. So, uh, I, I think that's everything. And then at the end of the game, you sort of figure out if you were any good at it. I mean, one of the scary things about this game is your next bet is probably, you know, assuming you're getting wealthier over time, the next bet's the most important always. Um, so <laughs> you true. sort of can't ever sleep, uh, on your process. You have to kind of love it, right? I mean, because if you don't love it, passive is, is probably the way to go, right? And I say that yeah. running a, an active stock recommendation service, but if you don't love it, it can be a scary proposition. Like when something like March happens and your, your positions are down 30%. And if you're just borrowing conviction from like a 13F or from a recommendation service even, uh, it, that's a scary proposition. You kind of, you really have to know why uh, you own what you own. Yeah, that's right. And like, I, I personally have, there, there are pockets of the market right now that make me confused, right? 
uh, at a minimum, I can say that the entire market is not trading in a depressed state of mind. If I saw the entire market in a depressed state of mind, I think I would trust an index a little bit more. Right now, part of the problem is I fundamentally don't trust the index. And maybe that's like overconfidence bias on my part and whatever. Um, but if March had happened and I was in an index product, there's a decent chance I would have sold. Now, I own some stuff that would make other people puke, but it didn't make me we'll get sell. Into that. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, right? But, <laughs> but so that's what I'm saying. Like, even if I underperform the index, which I think I have a reasonable shot at outperforming here. Um, I'm pretty pleased with where things are right now. But even if I theoretically am going to underperform, if I was not willing to hold the index through March and I would have bought in May, my realized returns would be junk relative to even a suboptimal performance or a portfolio. So I just think there's so much that a textbook may get right, but money is so behavioral that I think you got to do what's right for you because at the end of the day, like we're, we're all just trying to have enough to retire on and walk the path that we need to walk to get there. Right. So I actually, I want to like uh, talk about, it seems like your, your investment process has like evolved uh, like over the last year or so, like on your blog, you write throughout this process, I will try to avoid labels like value or growth because I deem them hazardous to people's investment health. In order to be a successful investor, one mustn't worry about his or her label. The most important thing to remember is you are buying an asset and your goal is to buy it A, at a substantial discount to what you think it is currently worth or B, at a substantial discount to what you think it will be worth. So let's not use those labels uh, because probably we use them too much as shortcuts. But it seems you've been undergoing a bit of an evolution in your investment process. How have your or have your underlying investment principles changed in the last year or so? I don't. I guess that uh, this is sort of interesting. So I I don't think that my principles, like from a high level, if we were just talking in a room, I don't think that I would say much different to you uh, that I said three years ago. I think what I have begun to understand as I've removed some stupidity from my life is <laughs> there is a lot of merit to valuing growth and paying for that growth. And I think, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, I, I listened to Buffett like over and over and over and over again. And it's, it's a little bit um, for me, uh, like going to my financial church. And I think that something that could be similar in that um, is sometimes you read the same words and hear completely different things or listen to the same message and it applies in a different way because of where you are in your life. And I just understand a lot more the nuance that those guys talk about than I used to. And I think that in the past I was young and thought I had all the answers and I was ignorant. And now I think at least I acknowledge that uh, there's a fair amount of things that I don't know. That's like a perfect transition to this. So like uh, Warren Buffett famously said, like uh, it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. So obviously growth and quality is integral to even Buffett's process, but quote unquote growth investors can't ignore valuations and value investors can't ignore quality. How, how, do, you, how do you weigh a company's valuation to its growth in economic moat when studying it? Like this is my personal biggest struggle in today's market. And I have yeah. a hard time balancing these things. 
Uh, how do you balance these two characteristics when investing? Um, I, you know, I wish that I could tell you that there's some scientific process. Uh, I look for things that make sense to me. And that, I mean, that's really what, what I look for. So if you look at my portfolio right now, there's some like higher quality names that, uh, like charter communications is one, um, that was a business that I had to get myself to stretch on a little bit. Um, but I really understood the strategy. Uh, I understood what they were trying to do, their backgrounds, and they were going through an integration issue and the stock had sold off really hard. And I think that there are some things that I bought Microsoft for the same exact reason that I'm about to tell you. When, when that stock sold off, my valuation was like theoretically a little lower. But then I had to look myself in the mirror and say, what's the probability that my precise estimate is correct here versus what's going on in the market, why I think people are selling and what I think the true merit of the story is. And I just determined I was wrong. And as I've learned more, I've realized why I've been wrong. Uh, but I'm not, I guess it, uh, what I would say is I respect what the market is telling me enough to realize that there are situations that will be presented to me that maybe are worth rethinking whether or not I'm the right one or not. And then there are other situations like a lot of these really growthy names that I just don't know a lot about, right? So, so when we're talking about terminal economics and TAM and what the competitive position is, I, I have no competence to assess any of that in a lot of these names. And uh, I just can't play a game that I don't know anything about. It's, it, I wish I could, I mean, right, especially right, right. right now, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm betting like my family's money. I'm looking at my kids every night. I can't lose it because I got some gamble in me and strayed from, you know, what I understand. So how, how do you weigh like staying, just staying within your circle of competence and then, I guess, trying to expand your circle of competence so that you understand other names. Yeah. I mean, so I guess, uh, one, I guess if I had uh, a mentor that was sort of on my arm, that was, you know, that, that just screamed at me and this can, we can start talking about ideas pretty soon. I think it's a, a relatively good segue. Like I'm interested in curate retail group right now. It's QVC and home shopping network, right? I mean, to me, the time that I have spent on that idea, in theory, probably could have been spent elsewhere with a much higher return on time. Uh, on the other hand, the reason I'm interested in the idea is some of the time that I've spent researching other stuff and looking at other situations and learning from things. And... I think I see a situation that could have a lot of upside with low downside that very few people either care to bet on or aren't willing to bet on or something. And it's all the time that I put in before and some of what I think I'm exploiting some emotional biases and other people here. Uh, so I guess, do I wish that I was studying like, you know, Fastly and some of these other stocks that are like, you know, Shopify and all that. You're like, yeah, I do. I think that that would probably be a higher return on time long term. But I think I see money, like real money right in front of me right now. So to just walk past that is uncomfortable for me. 
All right, so let's 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 go there. Uh, I, I'm not familiar at all with this stock, except for your your tweets the la- within the last week, maybe. So uh, <laughs> let's uh, subscribers don't don't turn off right now. I assure you, it'll get better. It's it's, <laughs> it's curate retail. Yeah, it's curate right, like curate. You, like a curation machine right, is what curate. they're trying to make all a right. play on. Gotcha. So we we have curate retail. So like a a week ago, I think you you tweeted something like, "I'm more confident in my portfolio than ever before," because uh, I'm going. No, no, to- no, not because I said, "And I have Wells oh. Fargo and curate well, and PVC is core maybe, positions." Maybe yes, despite. not because of <laughs> despite. Yeah. Uh, yes. So all right. So you have Wells Fargo and curate retail as as your core positions, and you're still. Uh, confident in your portfolio. And then yesterday, you to got be in- fair, hang on, hang on. I got to back up <laughs> so that the listeners don't all turn off. My portfolio is full. Like I own Transdime in size. I own Charter in size. I have a big allocation to Berkshire, which if you think Apple is somewhat close to reality in this valuation, like Berkshire is screamingly cheap to me. Uh, that's not like a recommendation to buy or anything. But when you think about that entity, if this valuation for Apple sticks, that that stock is too cheap. Um, so the tweet was a little clickbaity, right? I mean, I have IAC and from Match. you, yeah, <laughs> from you. What? I try not to. I try not to. But uh, you know, I do. I do. I'm trying to be thought provoking in what I say, right? Like it's not. Um, you know, do I think Match has a better future than Curate? Yeah, for sure. I think the equity slice of Curate's capital structure right now is ridiculously cheap. And I think you have really, really good capital allocators there that have just refinanced the debt that was due in 2022. They pushed it out to 2028. That's going to give them some flexibility. If they take the shot, they just, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll take a step back here, but I mean, ultimately what this is, is a thesis that they could eat the entire company back and buybacks in five years. And it, hopefully people keep underappreciating the story because if the cash flows stick and it remains this hated, I'm going to end up with a lot of money. So let's, let's, let's set this up a little bit and then we'll, we'll go into, yeah. uh, uh your thesis a bit more. So yesterday you got into it with my uh, colleague. Uh, That's because he was trolling me. I didn't get in. <laughs> so I will set up. I was on the phone with two real estate investors who are very savvy. And what they said is they said to me, I don't trust the stock market. I don't trust public equities. I don't trust anything. But we, we you know, sort of took a flyer on Zoom. And my comment was, this is a group of people that are telling me that like they fundamentally don't trust the stock market and they happen to buy Zoom like right here. I just think that there, are, there is behavior going on where people are seeing a lot of fast money being made and it's making it hard for them to stay in the lane that they believe in and has made them successful. Like that was my tweet. A lot yes, of FOMO. that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And With then- Zoom? Yeah, well, and then, yeah, and then Austin <laughs> and I sort of started debating the merits of Zoom, and I kept saying, like, dude, I don't know about Zoom. Like, I have no idea what this company is going to be. That's part of why I don't own shares in it. Like, I just don't understand where they go in the future, why they can defend themselves from Microsoft, why Google Meets doesn't take some share, why it's the best tech. Like, I just don't get it. So I just don't invest in it. After a day, I said, fine, put your chips on the table. 
And so I believe the bet, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, starts today. Well, we're recording this on Friday, August 28th. It starts today. It goes through two and a half years. And, and Austin took that Zoom will, will provide better total returns uh, to shareholders. And you were saying Curate Retail would provide better total returns to That's shareholders. Correct. So uh, what's your thesis for Curate over the next two and a half years? So basically, I think that with QVC, uh, it's hard to argue that you don't have a legacy sales distribution mechanism selling almost I mean, I'm not going to say overwhelmingly because of the the stats that they cite, uh, but I, I think that it's not a stretch to say that you're selling products to old ladies. Um, and, you know, they have said in the past that uh, I think 40 or I think they said 51% of their users were between uh, the ages of 35 and 60. I think last year they said 44% were between that age. So, you know, I, I read that and I think, okay, well, what are they not saying? They're probably saying that 50% of their users right. are over 60 years old, right? Right, right. Um, or maybe it's even 65. But at the end of the day, uh, the equity on a pro forma basis, so today it trades at $4.5 billion. I've watched this company for like two years and I've always been intrigued by like, oh, how does this continue to make money? It's bizarre right. to me. It Correct. feels like a cockroach. Um, <laughs> you know, because everybody's insane, it's going to die forever. And like, it just lives. I remember growing up and just like my dad, like just being completely puzzled about this, like whole entire business model. Like who, who, who buys these things from this TV channel? That's uh, right. Like John Malone was writing uh, an investor letter in 2001. It was making roughly 800 free, uh, million in, in operating cash flow. And today it makes roughly a billion dollars in operating cash flow. Like this thing just for some reason won't grow and won't die. And right. I think some of it's the variable cost structure nature. And I think some of it is, you know, they were, they were acquiring customers easier when they had legacy TV. And then the way that their customer base tends to work is it tends to, uh, I'm just going to say season, right? Women season into the, uh, into the buying habits. <laughs> And then they sort of like stay as they're older, right? Um, so the equity is four and a half billion today. Free cash flow to common equity today is right around, I think normalized, you can call it anywhere between 800 million and a billion. I don't think that you can really be too precise with it. Sure. Um, in the past, they have been running a leveraged buyback strategy, which is fairly typical of Malone companies. Um, and I think it was in Q4, it might've been a Q3 last year, the stock just kept declining and, uh, the CEO of Liberty media, Greg Maffei came out and he said, you know, we're going to, we're going to pause the, the buybacks here. Uh, we're going to see how else we can give capital back to shareholders. We realize the market is telling us that the terminal values declining. Uh, we think that you know, the market's overdone on this particular uh, assessment, but we don't disagree that, you know, the terminal value is opaque at best, right? So I thought that that was interesting because if you look at what other companies have done, like Bed Bath & Beyond, for instance, the amount of value that they have eroded by just like stubbornly doing a buyback into the market is maddening from a shareholder perspective. So then I'm sitting in my house and I'm like, oh, I wonder what Curate did last year or last 
six months, right? Like we're all sitting at home. I wonder what happened. And I picked up the 10K or 10Q and I saw a billion dollars of operating cash flow in the first six months. And I was shocked. Like I almost fell off the chair. Now, a lot of that was working capital benefit and that's going to reverse. So let's just call it 500 million. Um, Yet another year goes that they keep printing the money. Right. So I said, all right, well, what is Maffei saying? Like, I just sort of interested in the call. And I started listening to the call. And what he said is he said, okay, our shares are roughly 1050 a share today. Uh, we realize that the market doesn't like this story. We're going to give you a buck 50 in cash and a $3 preferred dividend. The $3 is going to have a 10 year maturity and it's going to pay 8% per year. Uh, and then the stub will be a levered equity. So the remaining equity is going to be a levered equity strategy. And I got to thinking, I was like, this is actually a very creative capital return that is not a buyback. And it's going to give the investor base that doesn't trust the duration of this asset, the ability to buy a 10-year coupon that yields 8%. And then those that sort of want to take a little bit more risk, they're going to probably turn the buyback machine back on for the levered equity. And I'm looking at a stub value of two and a half billion. And I think the levered equity is going to be able to repurchase somewhere between 200 and 400 million of, of equity pretty comfortably consistently. And if you run the math on that, years five and six get super interesting if the stock price doesn't increase at all. Eventually the float's just gonna be squeezed but let's say all the let's say their entire customer base is 65-year-old women sitting at home. The average life expectancy now is at least 79 and the equity is priced for a 6-year life. So to me the math just doesn't add up. Um and I don't think it's going to be some massive grower um but I would happily lose my bet to Austin if they could continue to print this free cash flow and just eat themselves. Sure. Uh, because I think in four or five years, either the stock goes up or you're just going to collect a lot of special dividends. Because I think these guys are really smart with what they do. I don't think they're going to use today's free cash flow to destroy value. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that bet turns out. Uh, like I think I... I I was running a poll on it and uh, I, it was almost 50, 50 at, at this I was time. shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I thought yeah. for sure zoom would win that. And, uh, and then I tweeted something like, I don't, you know, this tweet, like what it features one of the companies that's probably the most insanely valued ever. And then another company I don't know anything about. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see where that turns out in two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, right? It's hard to look at a TV selling distribution platform and be like, I know for sure the cash flow is going to be there. Right, I think right, that's part right. of the problem, right? Uh, and, and what I think that they have consistently said, and if you read the filings, you'll see, I mean, the cost structure is very variable. They, they had a good year in the face of all this cord cutting. I mean, all the cord cutting that happened in the first half of the year, and these guys killed it. Now, yeah, people were stuck at home, but on one hand, we've got everybody arguing that like, oh, look at what coronavirus pulled forward. Here's another company that it introduced a ton of customers to their, to their platform that they didn't have before. Can they keep them? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Is that habit forming you think, or is it uh, like a, a one-time shot? 
I, that's the thing that's tough to yeah. handicap, right? And I don't think anybody trusts that it's habit forming. Uh, the way the business works, it's it's a weird business. Uh, Do people still any- call in <laughs> and buy stuff? Like, uh, like, call this number and blah, no, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. There are some that do. But um, I mean, they call it e-commerce. I'm sure it's people that see on TV and route sure. the order through the internet. I think that's like 60% of the business now. And then of the, I, I mean, the way that they frame it tells you all you need to know, like of the e-commerce 50% sure. happens on mobile. So that's like 30%, you know, it's probably just a QVC app. Well, that's how you got to hype it. You got to say like, I got, I found an undiscovered e-commerce gem. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a platform, right? Like it is technically something that brings a seller and a, and a buyer together. So, you know, you undervalued just, oh, e-commerce platform. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. With network effects. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, when, when I, I say that somewhat in jest, no one right now can fathom a scenario where this company uh, can grow. I, I would not bet on growth at all. Sure. But if we're five years out and somebody says, Hey, uh, you know, what happened in coronavirus was the Macy's and Bloomingdale's of the world completely collapsed. Direct to consumer came out. Everybody was buying a bunch of stuff on Facebook, realized it's a really hard business Turns out QVC actually has scale to buy some, you know, ads and they're pretty good at featuring products and they became sort of like an aggregator of a certain niche for the market and use Facebook live as their distribution or customer acquisition strategy. That's not unfathomable to me. I I wouldn't bet it, but if it happens, there's going to be a lot of upside here. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, another company, if you're not exhausted about talking about Wells Fargo, why don't you give us your, 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 quick, your quick pitch for, for Wells Fargo? Well, I, look, so you and I had talked about this. I, I'm trying to uh, create a cash flow stream for my family off of an asset base. So that's, I think it's important to contextualize why even own a bank. Um, and I've read a lot of stuff about Wells Fargo. I understand, you know, it's a terrible bank that everybody hates and no one's going to bank there in the future. But uh, I don't think the data supports that thesis. And yes, the data is somewhat backwards looking. But um, what whatever complaints are lobbed at Wells Fargo, no one ever goes at their credit culture. And what I have found from talking to people over there is I, I think it's a, a reasonably good bet that uh, when they got in trouble and they weren't allowed to grow loans, they focused on their best relationships. I think their most profitable relationships that they tend to focus on have over a hundred million in revenue. I think it's plausible that through coronavirus, uh, the businesses that are going to survive and have more market share on the back end are those with access to capital. I think it's plausible that those businesses have more than a hundred million in revenue. And I think that that, combined with what I know about their credit culture makes me think that it's plausible that they perform quite a bit better than people think they will. And you're buying it at like 70% of tangible book value and they know how to underwrite loans. You're flying in the face of a ton of NIM pressure, but I don't know how regional banks uh, and, and even forget about regionals. Like there's, there's going to be this section of banks that this interest rate policy kills. And those deposits have to go somewhere. And like banking isn't that easy of a business to disrupt. I mean, 
I agree that fintech is coming for it, but there is a lot that goes into banking, especially on the commercial side. Uh, and I think that a lot of fintech can actually help banks get more efficient, but I don't know that it's going to displace them. So, you know, I, we'll see. Sure. So this is kind of an unfair question, but like if you were, you know, your bet with Austin for, for curate retail was, was two and a half years. If, if you were going to put a timeline on this, like how, how do you, how long do you think this takes to, to play out? I have no say? idea. That's yeah. why I wouldn't bet it on a timeline. Yeah. I will tell you if they can't, the asset cap, I mean, for those that don't know, they are like heavily in the penalty box. And the reason that they're heavily in the penalty box, in my opinion, is not because of what they did. It's what they didn't do to fix it. And if they don't fix it, there's massive, I mean, you're at risk of the government breaking the whole bank up. So uh, I, it's important for them to do that. And I, if I don't see any type of... um sign like if there's any signs that that is going sideways or you know whatever that's the risk that would keep me up at night uh, or you know sort of does but i i think they've got the right plan in place so i would like to see that remove the asset capped removed within two years if it's not i've said that I've, i'm selling okay all right um so like how do you i think so on one level i think you're doing the right thing because you're looking for i guess like losers in this market that aren't going to be like ultimate losers or like, you know, that can, that are been beaten up too much. Uh, um, on the other hand though, like, so my personal leanings and the way we do it at Summit Investing is we, we just look for really long-term opportunities where you can uh, buy and hold for the long-term. And I've, I've seen you uh, uh, go back and forth in a, in a very cordial way, I mean, but back and forth with like Jerry Cap on Twitter and others like who, you know, they do the hashtag never sell. Like what for, for, for retail investors, like, do you think it's better to like, what, what, I guess like, what do you think? To me, it's just better to look for those opportunities, even though I admit almost all of them are, are very pricey at the moment. Uh, like we could look at Microsoft, which I know you've owned and I think you've been trimming a bit. I don't know if you still yeah. own a position. Yeah, I do. Um, but like, I think it's almost at 40 times earnings, which is, it's expensive. There's, there's no way around it that you can't, uh, you know, say it's not expensive. But at the same time, I feel like you can hold that for the next decade. And in a decade, you're, I, th I think even from this valuation, like you're going to do just fine with it, uh, beating the market even. Uh, like, how do you think people should weigh these opportunities? Like, like the buy low, sell high versus the, like the hashtag never sell, the, the long-term buy and hold. I mean, I don't have a good answer for this. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you look at a guy like Chuck Ackrey, it's impossible to argue that he hasn't built his career on that. Um, Tom Russo has had a hell of a career doing something similar. Uh, but he, you know, I mean, he just sold, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, and I think he trimmed something else. Uh, you know, uh, Buffett says that he wants to be never sell, but he's selling some financials right now. Um, I think that you could look at Coke and like what he had in 99, he objectively should have sold. And I think he would have if he was a retail investor. I just don't think you can within the entity that's Berkshire. It, it just gets way too complicated. And once you're that well known. Um so look, I, I mean, I think that the truth is somewhere in between the two things. I, I 
just think that there's a lot of um, evidence out there that uh, people tend to buy into narratives and narratives can be overdone. And when you're buying something that implies a lot of growth in the future, you, I think also, if you're going to never sell it, have to have a view on why they can continue to defend themselves. Because I think you really get crushed when you pay up for a growthy asset and it doesn't grow. And, you know, the, the downside of, you know, the traditional value idea is, you know, like you buy something like Curate and it erodes under your feet and it's got a bunch of debt. Now it's a zero. So, um, you know, both, both approaches have trade-offs. I am not a never seller. Uh, I do think that there's some merit in it for sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm like, I'm friends with Jerry, so I'm not, uh, when he and I go at each other, it's, it's all in jest. No, but, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I tried to suggest otherwise. Yeah. I mean, look, I just think, uh, I, I guess what I'd say is right now it's hard to argue to me, at least in certain parts of the market, there's not some froth and, people are saying never sell. I mean, that's sort of what you'd say close to the top, right? I mean, this is how <laughs> tops are formed, like psychologically. Uh, they're, they're not formed when people are saying, oh, you've got to never sell. Uh, you know what I mean? Like in 08, no one was saying never sell. They sure. were saying, where do I need to run to? Yeah, what's that? Like the, the saying, like when you're, when the, when the valuations are high, the, the outlook is always like into infinite, infinity. And when valuations are like getting hammered, you know, the, the, the outlook is like tomorrow. Yeah. Well, think about March, right? Like, I mean, until the fed came and the government bailed everybody out, everybody was worried about tomorrow. Forget about, you know, what the world's going to look like in 20 years. Right. So if, if you're buying today in, in the next 20 years, there could be a war, there could be, uh, you know, another pandemic, like who the hell knows. So you just really have to have a view on whether or not you want to own the asset for that long. And that's, that's where someone like me needs to do a lot of work to understand why the assets can continue to grow through that. And, you know, I, I see a lot of these young companies and I see the growth and like, by definition, they should be growing quickly. It's uh it's early adopters. It's a, you know, it's supposedly these huge TAMs. I don't know. When do these guys start bumping into each other? Uh, I'm more suited to like, I understand owning Salesforce. I understand owning even something like SAP, somebody like Accenture, sort of the arms dealers of the game and the people that can buy and plug. I don't have a strong view on the smaller players and how the ecosystem is going to form. Sure. It's definitely a, a higher risk, high reward scenarios with those. Yeah. Uh, like the younger SaaS players. Uh, no doubt. And they're awesome businesses. Like I, I get it. I just, you know, they say, if you don't know who the patsy at the table is, it's you. I mean, I know I'm the patsy at that table. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, how about one last question before we wrap this conversation up? Uh, one thing uh, our seven investing advisors have talked a lot about uh, both on Twitter and on this podcast is teaching our kids about personal finance and investing. Uh, I know you're a father that cares deeply for your children. Uh, what tips would you give fellow parents about educating their children on financial matters? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, for, I can just talk about what I did. Um, I mean, I used to be long the airlines. Uh, my kids really like planes, you know, and it sounds sort of silly, but I'd talk to a four-year-old about what load factor needed to be in order for us to be making money on that flight. Um, and 
he knew, you know, and, and I don't know that he actually knew, but we were walking through the airport and, and it was jam packed. I mean, this is 2019. He was like, dad, we're making money right now. You know? And like he, <laughs> he internalized what I was teaching him and, you know, they own shares in Disney. And I try to tell them like, when you turn on Disney plus, you get a small, small fraction of a penny. Um, but everyone around the world that's turning on Disney plus is putting some small, small amount into your, into your pocket. And they really like that. Um, my one kid had to pay taxes last year and he was all, he was ranting about the tax man in April, <laughs> which is sort of funny. Um, yeah. but you know, I've, I've got them in, um, I mean, they, they basically have a three stock portfolio and it's, it's more or less what I have, uh, so like one of the companies is Transdime and I, I tell them like every time a plane flies around that needs replacement parts and you sell them those replacement parts. And I just try to talk to them about that stuff. Uh, that's great. Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, let's wrap up our conversation there. Bill, where can people find you if they're interested in following you? I'm always on Twitter at Bill Brewster SCG. You'll probably see me interacting with Matt or Austin. I'll be, I'll be trolling him depending on uh, or I'll just be laughing at myself. Cause I bet on QVC. We'll see which one it is. All right. Uh, Bill Brewster, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing investing with us again. I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with seven investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.